So if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to be looking at chapter 8 today. Remember, we're going through our series here in 1 Corinthians. Last week, in the last three, couple of weeks, we looked at marriage, principles for marriage and singleness, and that kind of came as about as Paul, the Corinthian church, a lot of new believers in the Corinthian church coming out of a very pagan background, <clears throat> they had a lot of questions for Paul. And today the questions continue because he, they must have written him in this letter that they wrote him about marriage and singleness and some other questions. They also wrote him about um, food being offered to idols. And it really falls under the heading of Christian liberty, Christian freedom. And so today we want to look at biblical principles for Christian liberty. And first of all, I just want to ask, what is Christian liberty? What do I mean by that? Um, It means that we have liberty in Christ. We have freedom in Christ. Uh, It's very crucial that you understand your Christian liberty. Romans 6.14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under what? Grace. As a Christian, we're not under the law. We're not held to the law. We're held, we're under grace. And so freedom from the law certainly does not mean that the principles of righteousness revealed in the Old Testament law are nullified in any way. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that the, the Ten Commandments have no application to our present life. It doesn't mean that somehow we, we replace God's holy law with our own personal standards and preferences. Can't mean that. And it doesn't mean that you're free of any moral requirements. Some Christians, especially even in the Reformed area of theology, I think take Christian liberty a bit too far. They don't have a problem smoking a cigar. They don't have a problem with a lot of things, drinking alcohol. And those are all things that the Scripture doesn't speak to directly. Maybe indirectly it does, but it doesn't speak to directly. So what do we mean by Christian liberty? We basically mean that Christians are not bound to observe the rituals of the Old Testament. In other words, we don't have to sacrifice animals. Some of you animal lovers are probably happy about that. Um, We don't have to observe the laws of ceremonial uh, cleanliness. We don't have to celebrate all the new moons and feasts and sacrifices that they had to in the Old Testament. We don't have to follow the dietary laws that was given to Israel through Moses. Amen? Amen. Some of you may say amen to that. I don't know. I say amen to that. We're all free from that in Christ, the Bible says. We are free from all the pagan or Gentile religious upbringing maybe we came from. Maybe the superstition or the ceremonies that we were involved in. 
whatever our religious background or heritage may be in Christ, we're free from all the trappings of that. Having come out of the the Catholic Church, I understand that because there was a lot of trappings (laughs) in the Catholic Church. But now we live by what? We live by God's grace, which has the principle for us of true righteousness built into God's grace. In other words, we don't have to follow some external code, a rule book, a bunch of rules to gain God's righteousness. We're not governed by that. We're governed by God's grace, God's unmerited favor. And it operates in us to fulfill the righteousness that the law requires. Romans 8, chapter 4 Romans 8, verse 4, excuse me, Paul says this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. It's not that we're taking the law and just saying, oh, we don't, that's old stuff. We don't have to deal with that anymore. It says it's fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to what? According to the Spirit. See, grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. Grace teaches us to deny sinful passions, worldly desires, Grace teaches us to live uh, righteous, sensible, godly lives. Titus chapter 2 verse 12 says, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what God's grace does for us as believers. The grace of God empowers us to live holy lives. And with that comes tremendous freedom, comes tremendous liberty. We have no need to yield to anyone's customs or human opinion or ceremonies. We don't even need a priest to intercede for us anymore. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus We don't need to go to some specific temple to make a pilgrimage to worship. Why? Because our very bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. We can worship God in spirit and truth anytime, anywhere, That's what the lady asked Jesus in John 4. And he said, the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24, John 4 says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in what? Spirit and truth. In Christ, we have the freedom to go to God and ask. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Think of the tremendous liberty in that statement. John 14, 16 says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So God gives us the ability 
to manage our liberty in Christ through the Spirit. He says in verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. See, all things belong to us in Christ. We are Christ. We are Christ. First Corinthians 3.21, Paul says, So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. We are hidden in Christ. So we come to this passage, Roman, or 1 Corinthians 8, and it brings up the idea of food offered to idols. Now, if an action isn't right or wrong, there are some things that aren't right or wrong. There are some things that are not expressly addressed in the Bible. You can't find a verse that says you should not smoke. You can't find a verse that says you should not drink. It says you shouldn't get drunk. You can't find a verse that says you shouldn't listen to rock music. If an action isn't right or wrong, not something expressly forbidden in the Bible, a Christian has the freedom to do it. That's the bottom line. But that's not saying that believers are always to use their freedom in Christ to do whatever they want. <laughs> that's not always the, the best outcome. Matter of fact, as believers, we need to watch how we live. We need to be careful. That's what Paul's warning to the Corinthian church was. And it's an important message for all who follow Christ today. Christ, Christian liberty is throughout the entire New Testament. He says in John 8, verses 31 and 32, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and what? And the truth shall make you free. We're not held in bondage. 2 Corinthians 317, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or there is freedom. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. He didn't save us so that we would be held to some rule of law. But I'll say this, Christian liberty is not unbridled license. In your Christian liberty, you don't have the freedom to sin. So you have to be careful. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. 
So Christian liberty gives us the freedom to do all things in Christ that are not forbidden in his word. But sometimes we have to stop and ask ourselves, is this the wisest thing to do? And usually, when it comes to Christian lives, people fall into one of two categories. They're listed there for you. The first one is legalism. Legalism believes that every act, every habit, every type of behavior is either black or white. You ever met someone that says, well, I'm just black and white. People like this live by rules rather than by the Spirit. People can be legalistic about, well, is it right to have a TV in your home or not? Is it right to have a sip of wine or not? Is it right to play sports on a Sunday? Is it right to shop on a Sunday? See, our our, our country has compromised so much in the realm of our Christian life that anymore we don't even recognize what's right and wrong. And so people that fall into this legalistic mentality, and we all have that uh, in our hearts. We make judgments on people based on what we see, don't we? We do it all the time. It's like the individual that's out smoking on a cigarette before they come into church on Sunday morning. You see them and, wow, I don't think you're a Christian. They're smoking a cigarette before they come into church. That's legalism. That's judgmentalism. That's one extreme. The other extreme is license. You have legalism on one side. On the other side, you have license. And that basically believes that everything's acceptable as long as it's not strictly forbidden in Scripture. In other words, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. And the Christian liberty is absolute and it's unqualified. That goes against, by the way, what we just read out of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. So Paul takes this question up that's posed by the Corinthians in this text. And really, he's moving if you've been with us in these studies, he's moving from a larger question of human um, relationships with focus, remember, on marriage and divorce and singleness. Now he takes up <clears throat> another question that they, they asked him that relates to, you might say, domestic situation of the Corinthian believers themselves, which even includes their friends, their relatives, their co-workers. And so follow along with me as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, which gives an indication they wrote him a letter and asked him about this. We know that all of us possess knowledge. The knowledge, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Verse 5, for although there, are, there may be so-called gods, small g, in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, in quotes, 
Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Some would argue with that, but that's what Paul says. (laughs) But verse 9, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, or falls into sin is the idea. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience When it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, Paul writes this chapter in question to, in answer to their question, Paul, what if some of the people in the church are eating meat that is sacrificed to idols at the pagan temple? You have to understand, back in Paul's day, day, you know, uh, meat was a luxurious food. Not everyone always had meat. But the temple always had meat because you had to sacrifice. You had to make sacrifices. And so these people would come to the temple, they would make the sacrifice, and not the whole animal would be burned up or sacrificed, and so they'd have portions of meat left over. Some of it went to the folks at the temple, the priest, whatever, and the other parts, a lot of it was left over. They would take it to the market, and they would sell it. You know, when we go to our markets to buy meat, sometimes it says special. You know, well, so there's a reason why it's unspecial, folks, right? It's getting a little close to the date, may not look very edible, but it's cheap. Doesn't mean you can't take it home and eat it, but it may not look that good. Well, they didn't have that kind of signs and labels on their meat. So you didn't know what you were buying when you went to the market, for the most part. And so this became an issue. And so they wanted some answer from Paul. Is this right? Some of these people are are doing this. I don't know if this is right or not. Um, Some of the people are getting very legalistic about it and saying if they're eating this meat, they're probably not even Christians. I mean, we have similar things. You know, we've mentioned some of them here this morning. And sometimes you have to understand these people came out of a pagan background. So they were used to going to their pagan temples, sacrificing these, these meats to an idol, and then they come to Christ. And what do they do? Rightfully so, they run away from their paganism, right? And they cling to Christ, just like we would encourage anyone to. 
So then they're in the church, and they go over to Joe's house for dinner, and Joe's got a nice steak they're eating. Where'd you get this steak? Oh, I bought it at the market. Oh, is that the market down on 5th and Main? Yeah. You know, that's from the temple. That's temple meat. Yeah. So what? Well, you don't understand what they do to that meat. I mean, that's, that's dedicated to idols. And, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. Take a bite. It's great. See, Joe may not have an issue with it, but his guest may because of his background. And so how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? Do you just say, ah, don't worry about it? Today we have people that, I met a brother one time who used to be a um, gambler. He was a youth pastor, and I, I met him at uh, a youth pastor's conference up at Yuma Lake. And after, you know, Friday night, they, the guys would go to the cafeteria there, and they'd sit around, and some of them just, you know, they were playing cards. Nothing, just simple card game. And I remember this youth pastor telling me, boy, what are they doing in there? Why? They got cards. I'm like, yeah? What's the problem? Oh, you don't know the evils of cards. Man, I know. I mean, my family lived in Las Vegas, and I was even a kind of a, a dealer and I, I used to be able to deal cards like nobody. See, to him, cards just represented evil. <laughs> okay? Nothing wrong with playing cards. Nothing at all. I mean, some people have the same attitude about bowling. Or the same attitude about pool halls. Remember the, I don't know if you're remember the, familiar with the music man. Trouble, capital T, and that rhymes with P, and that stands for pool. That song goes on to tell all the, now there's a lot of seedy things that probably go on in pool halls, but playing pool in and of itself is not evil. It's not even sinful. You have, within your Christian liberty, the freedom to go down to San Mateo or Burlingame or wherever the pool hall is and go in and play a game of pool. But you have to be ready if another brother sees you coming out of there. Maybe they don't have a good experience with pool. That that could be possibly offensive to them. It could cause them to stumble. It could actually cause them, oh, you mean it's okay to go play pool? Maybe they're addicted to pool. Maybe we were in the pool while they had too many beers and they got drunk. And you, you could open up a whole Pandora's box for somebody about that. And so some of the believers here in Corinth were saying, look, it's not an issue. You know, they were using their license and their stated reasons for their license. In verse 1, Paul addresses the first one. He says, concerning food offered to idols, we know. That, that word, we know, just, just kind of underline it because you'll see it all over the place. If we know anything about the Corinthian church, we know that they thought they knew a lot. <laughs> they really did. And so they said, we know that all of us possess knowledge. All of us possess knowledge. But look at what Paul says. This knowledge puffs up. This knowledge 
makes your head grow bigger. Better be careful. See, the difference between legalism and license, there's a similarity. Actually, neither one knows any gray areas. Legalism makes everything black and white. License basically just makes everything okay. (laughs) And so you have to be careful when some of these people were thinking, hey, we're free in Christ. We know this to be true. We know that we have all knowledge. Notice there he says we. He's talking about the group of believers in Corinth who had a lot of knowledge about this specific issue. They've experienced it. And then the second reason, he says here, is in verse 4. If you look down to verse 4, the second reason for their license, and we, we use these today in our own lives as well. Well, you know, an idol's nothing. Verse 4, he says, an idol has no real existence. Who cares if they sacrifice it to an idol? There's only one God. It doesn't matter what they do. They have this knowledge that an idol means nothing. Therefore, the food that is sacrificed to the idol must mean nothing to God as well. So therefore, the whole issue generally of what you should eat and and what you should drink, it doesn't matter to God. That's the third reasoning there. Because an idol has no real existence. God doesn't care about this. There's only one God. We know that to be true. There's no significance in an idol. An idol represents a God who doesn't exist. Why should you be afraid of eating meat that's sacrificed to something that doesn't exist? That's just silly. So you see, they, they have this knowledge that an idol means nothing. Therefore, the food that is sacrificed to the idol means nothing to God as well. And therefore, the whole issue generally doesn't matter. It doesn't commend you to God. It doesn't make you more spiritual or less spiritual. Kind of sounds like Paul when he was writing to the Corinthians in the last chapter, right? Remember, some people were asking, well, is it more spiritual to stay single or is it, is it okay to get married? See, they're, 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 they're looking for their spirituality in what they do. They're looking for their righteousness in what they do. And Paul's conclusion was, you know what? None of them are more spiritual. One is not more spiritual. It's not more spiritual to be single than it is to be married. But there may be certain circumstances. In the context of the last chapter, he talks about distress, persecution, whatever. It might be advisable if you're single, just stay single because then your whole family doesn't have to suffer with you. But there's not a choice of morality between the two. Well, the Corinthians may not have had that knowledge when Paul was speaking to them concerning marriage, but they had it concerning the sacrifices. They understood it. They knew that there's no such thing as a 
of a false God. It's just that. It's false. It doesn't exist. You know, there's a lot of people that are very superstitious about certain things. Remember a Catholic friend of mine who came to Christ, and he, his mother passed away, and he had his mom's rosary. And I remember him asking me after he came to Christ, should I throw this out? Why? Why would you throw it out? I mean, it's a family keepsake. I wouldn't throw it out. Well, don't you think it represents, you know, and he went in the, don't you think this is bringing demons into my, I said, no. There's no power in that rosary. Kind of ticks you off as many times you prayed the rosary when you're a Catholic, you realize it doesn't really matter. So they said, What's the problem, Paul? Why can't we eat this meat that is offered to idols? Here's Paul, once again, finding himself in this situation with the Corinthian church. He's got to fix it, he's got to fix something. He has two sides, he's got to monitor. And it's amazing, his godly wisdom, his godly insight, how it, he's able to come right down the middle with a biblical principle that's totally balanced. It's not on the side of legalism, it's not on the side of license. And he gives these people this instruction. When well, in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, he states the principle. In chapter 9 and 10, He illustrates this principle that we're going to look at. And then toward chapter 11, the end of chapter 10, he applies this principle. So he wants them to understand. He illustrates it personally. He says, I came to you as an apostle. I had a right when I was with you to eat in your houses. This is what he says. We'll be looking at this in the coming weeks. At your tables, for the labor is worthy of his hire. Muzzle, not the ox. We're all familiar with that. So what's he saying? He said, you know what? I had a right to be paid. I had a right to be taken care of. But I, you know what? I didn't take my right. It was my right, and I didn't take it. Boy, doesn't that fly in the face of our society today where everybody's got a right to do something. They're out there telling you, ah, it's my right. He illustrates it personally later in chapter 10, right through the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 11. He he applies it, and he talks specifically about this subject, about eating meat. And we'll get to that in a couple weeks. And he says, by the way, in that context, you know, you really ought not to eat it. Not because it's moral or immoral, but because there may be some other ramifications of you doing that. So where's the principle that I'm talking about? Look at verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 9. Here's the principle, the overriding principle. But take care that this right, this Christian liberty of yours, does not somehow become a stumbling block, what, to the weak What's he saying? He's saying, you know what, Corinthians, you're right. You have knowledge. Maybe there are are weaker believers in the church that don't realize that these idols don't mean anything. And maybe they think that when you eat or you drink, somehow that, that commends you to God. But you've got that knowledge. 
And you know what, Corinthians? You're right. You're on the right side of this. Idols don't mean anything. And meat doesn't mean anything to God. He doesn't care whether you eat meat or not. I heard someone one time quote one of these passages for their case for vegetarianism. I thought, oh my goodness. But you have to exercise your Christian liberty in the given area that is not forbidden in Scripture by considering, in that gray area, you have to exercise your Christian liberty by considering the effect that you may have on other people. Especially, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. So what's he saying? He's saying, yeah, you know what? You're right. You're allowed to eat this meat. There's no significance to it, to God or to men. But you have to consider your fellow believers. And you have to consider the effect that it might have on the brethren, on those in the church, and maybe even those who witness you doing such a thing. So the hot issue in Corinth was eating this meat sacrificed to idols. Remember when we did the introduction to Corinth, Corinth was the center for idol worship. So this was something they was very commonplace. The temple on the Mount of Corinth is where they worshiped their pagan gods and they sacrificed and they had all this meat left over and they take it to the market. When you would go to a wedding, possibly even a funeral, maybe a, a banquet, or maybe a neighbor invited you over for house, for, for dinner to their house, and they served you meat. More than likely, it was meat that came from the market that was sacrificed to idols. It was leftovers. So it was kind of sticky, a sticky situation that these believers were in. On one hand, they couldn't absolutely give up their, their family and their friends for the interests of the gospel. They, they didn't want to just walk away from everybody and say, well, we're not even going to go to any of these banquets or whatever. And yet they were, they were trying to be you know, salt and light to their community and win those out of the world. But on the other side of the coin, these relationships where this meal was they were partaking in this meal and this meat was being eaten were full of temptations to some. It brought back visions of their previous life. And while some argued, well, it's not wrong, you can eat whatever you want. Just forget about it. Go ahead and eat the meat. You're free in Christ to do it. They were right. Because there's no significance to the idols, there's no significance to the meat. He doesn't, God doesn't care about whether you eat meat or not. Then some, on the other hand, said, well, we don't think that's right because in the past we worshiped these idols. And it means more than just a piece of meat. It represents a lot more. You know, personally, I remember in our church, we had a brother started coming to church and was really... Um, professionally trained drummer down Hollywood the whole thing I'm like wow great oh Ken you'll get you some help you know this would be great you guys 
And I remember asking him, hey, can you help us? No, I don't do that. What? And I, you know, hearing him play, and I just thought, wow, this guy's really gifted. I don't do it anymore. But you were trained to do this. What do you mean you don't do it anymore? No, it's just, it just represents my old life. I don't want to do it anymore. That, I struggle with that. You know? But you know what? That was their call to make. It wasn't my call to sit in judgment of that person. It was my call to give them the freedom to, to do what they wanted to do. And so you have to ask yourself these questions. Paul's questions concerning Christian liberty here. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, he says, Does that knowledge that you have blow up or build up? <laughs> Notice he says that this knowledge is puffed up. It puffs you up. But love, what? Builds up. See, some were not bothered. Paul says, we, we know that these things, we know this to be true. We have this knowledge. He even includes himself. We know that it's not a sin to do a particular sin. But then he warns them. He says, this knowledge puffs up. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and what? All knowledge. Paul commended them. On the way they spoke, he commended them on the knowledge that they had. See, these were clever people. But the problem was that there was this feeling of being, you might say, egotistical about their knowledge. They had kind of a superiority complex in the knowledge that they had. Well, you simpletons don't understand. You haven't been Christians as long as we have. We understand that idols aren't anything. It doesn't matter whether you eat this piece of meat or not. Come on, get with it. Your knowledge has the power to puff you up, which makes us, what, prideful? Makes us arrogant? And because these Corinthians were mature in knowledge, unfortunately, they weren't mature in love. See, it's wrong to be all love. I mean, there are some churches, that's all they push. Oh, it's just love of God, the love of God. No doctrine. But Paul was saying that it's equally wrong to be all doctrine and what? No love. You have to have both. Someone once said, some Christians grow, but other Christians swell. (laughs) And that's so true. That's so true. These Christians were swelling. Their knowledge was correct. It was theologically accurate. All their I's were dotted, all the T's were crossed. But Paul here is trying to make them see this distinction, that knowledge puffs you up. But love what? Love edifies. He says, you're right. You're right, technically, on what you're saying. But you know what? He's also saying, you can be right, Corinthians, in a wrong way. And I'm sure we've all been guilty of that. 
Love edifies, builds up. So these believers were solid in doctrine, but they were what? They were weak in love. They were strong in loving themselves, but they were weak in brotherly love. Now Paul here isn't decrying doctrine. He's not saying that doctrine isn't important. He's probably the greatest doctrinal teacher in the whole New Testament. He couldn't be possibly saying that. He's not minimizing doctrine. But he's warning us, doctrine is not enough. Doctrine is essential. But it's not sufficient. Without love... It makes us arrogant, Paul says. Arrogance, as we've seen, as we've gone through this apostle, the statement puffed up, comes up over and over and over again. It's probably their biggest problem. The underlying problem of all of these sins that we see in the Corinthian church. The words used six times, arrogant of them, They were proud. They were self-satisfied. So Paul says, you know, yeah, you've got all this knowledge. He's agreeing with them. And you know what? The knowledge you have is correct. But then he says, you're wrong. How can you say both of those things? Well, Paul did. You can be right and wrong at the same time. Because of the way that you're right. Without charity, without love. Just turn over to... I'm just going to read this verse. uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul tells this church, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not charity, have not love, I am what? A noisy gong or a clanging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, and look at that, all knowledge brings that up again. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, Paul says, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he goes on and he talks about love being patient and kind. And so forth. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 18 what our Lord said there? He said it would be better that a millstone were put around your neck and that you were drowned in the depths of the ocean than you offend one of these little ones of mine. Now, obviously, he's speaking of the children around him. I understand that. But Paul talks in this passage about those for whom Christ died, about not offending them. See, the mature Christian, what Paul is really saying here is he has a a double barrel in his gun. The mature Christian does. He's a man that thinks right, but he also, what, acts right. 
He's got it upstairs, but he doesn't leave it there. He's a relational Christian. He knows how to relate the truths of God that's in his head to himself and also to other people around him. What's amazing is when you study church history even, you see that a lot of the divisions that take place in our land, in our, in our churches, they're not doctrinal. They're not doctrinal. They're not conceptual. You know what they are? They're relational. They're relational. Most of the divisions that have taken place in churches are relational. They're not fighting over who Jesus is. They're not fighting over whether the Bible's true or not. They may appear to be. But what's at the bottom of it? The bottom of it is they they can't hold their doctrine in grace. They can't agree to differ in grace. And Paul is just saying to us that knowledge, we may think, get all the knowledge you can. That's a good thing. Do all you can to get that knowledge. But know this, knowledge doesn't solve all the problems that there are. How many of you have had your young child crying at night because there's a monster in the closet? What do you do? Do you go upstairs and open the door and say, now listen, son, you're going to have to get over this because this is just ridiculous. Do you think there's something frightening in the dark? There's nothing here. Do you think he's going to jump out of the cupboard and eat you all up? That's not true. Just stop it. You don't do that. Why? Because a child in that situation doesn't need logic. (laughs) What's he need? He needs understanding. See, I mean, you know when you're telling your little boy that there's, there's no monster in the closet, you know you're right. But does he know you're right? Does he understand why you're right? See, that is exactly what Paul is saying. These are babes in Christ. And these Corinthians believers, they may have been from a Jewish background, they were flaunting their freedom to the expense of those who were just converted. Someone said, love without truth is hypocrisy. But truth without love is brutality. See, I hope, dearly beloved, that we never, ever become the right orthodox people who can hurt anybody and everybody or turn into feelingless fundamentals who are arrogant but can't edify others. See, Paul gives us a warning here if we're about to fall into that sin. Verse 2, he says, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. This is a warning by Paul. In other words, God help you if you think you got it all down. You know everything there is to know. 
Because if that's your attitude, Paul says, you don't know nothing. You know absolutely nothing. Someone has defined knowledge as the process of passing from the unconscious state of ignorance to the conscious state of ignorance. (laughs) To moving from thinking you know everything to knowing that you know nothing. Isn't that true? The more you practice your faith, the more you study the word, the more you fellowship, you you realize, wow, I I don't know hardly anything. But in verse 3, Paul points out, if, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is a fundamental truth that we have to understand. It's that you don't learn truth primarily by going to Bible college or seminary or university or reading books off your shelf, or even listening to preachers and teachers. Because true knowledge is relational as well as conceptual. Not only in the way that we relate to other people, but primarily, only one way we can get true knowledge, and that is from who? It's from God. It's by spending time with God. But if any man loves God, that's what he says, he is known by God. The implication there is is when we're in that relationship of fellowship that we will begin to learn how to love others as God loves them. Getting a little close, huh? See, a good test, good test to take as to how watertight your knowledge is Did you get that knowledge on your knees? Or did you get it from some degree, some university somewhere? Where did you get your knowledge? Does that knowledge make you love others? Or does it make you despise others that don't have as much great enlightenment as you may have? See, Paul says in verse 3, it's one thing to know doctrine but it's another thing to know God. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of very smart people in seminaries all across this nation that teach class after class and have great knowledge but probably don't even know the God they speak of in a personal way. Knowledge on its own puffs up. That's what Paul's saying. But if you know God, you'll love others. And what he's driving at is love will set the limits of your Christian liberty. You'll understand then, well, how far do I go with my Christian liberty? Because I know that I can do this thing, but is it the right thing to do? Because my brother here struggles in that area, and maybe I don't want him to struggle as a result of what I'm doing. So out of love for your brother, you may restrain, even though you have the right to do that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul clearly tells us that we should think about the things of others and not about the things of ourself. We're not to think about what our right is, what our freedom is, but we should be looking after other believers. And then your love will set the limits of your liberty. Lord Bacon put it this way. He said, desire 
of power in excess caused the angels to fall. The desire of knowledge in excess caused man to fall. But in love, there is no excess. (laughs) Neither can man or angels come into danger by it. What's he saying? You can't love too much. You can't love too much. A good taste of your knowledge. Do you get it on your knees or do you get it from a book? Does your knowledge blow up or does it build up? Does it destroy or does it edify? Secondly, is your liberty, is your freedom in Christ a hazard or a a help? In verses 4 to 9, he points this out here. Paul is saying here, you look, you have the right knowledge. Idols mean nothing. Some, you know, these are, these are they're fakes. But he says in chapter 10, verse 20, some of them are, are manifestations of demons. But they're not true gods. It's just something a, a demon can work through. He quotes the psalmist in verse 5, there may be gods and lords many, That doesn't mean they actually exist. It means in the minds of men across the world, the heathens, there are all these gods. But he said there's only one true God. They're only called gods. They're not real. So he's he's really affirming the Corinthians' theology here. He says, you're right. In verse 6, he kind of nails it down here. He says, yet... From us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. They were clearly Trinitarian in their doctrine. They knew that there was only one God, that he has come in the person of Jesus Christ, his Son. But look at what he says in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. You've got that knowledge, that's great, you're right, but you know what? You have to think of those who don't have that knowledge. Not every new believer in Corinth is thinking in those right ways. Some of them were thinking that the idol was a real God. They knew they had the right God, the true God, and they thought that this idol was uh, an evil God, but they thought it existed. And if a piece of meat was sacrificed to that idol, there would be some kind of curse placed on them if they ate that piece of meat. Now, that's silly talk. But frankly, I've heard Christians say the same thing about idols of other religions, thinking that there's some power in those things. See, what Paul is saying to the stronger brethren is, If they see you sitting down in the temple eating this meat, even though there's no God really behind the idol and God doesn't care whether you eat it or not, or if they see you in the market buying this meat that was sacrificed to idols, they may think, well, you know what, it's okay for me to do that. And they may go against their own conscience. Because, see, they have a conscience. And if their conscience, because of their background, is saying, oh, I would never do that, that's wrong. Oh, but brother so-and-so is doing it, so maybe maybe I, I can do this. That's why it says their conscience being weakened is defiled. In other words, they're doing something against what their heart is telling them is wrong. They go ahead and do it because they see maybe a mature Christian doesn't have a problem doing it. 
even though the act in and of itself is not categorized as sin in Scripture, and it is not a sin, it's not morally or spiritually wrong in the context here, it becomes wrong when it's committed against the conscience of one of the one who does it. See, these, these Corinthians were strong. They had a clear conscience. They could go and they could eat meat all day long. It wouldn't bother them a bit. But then they had other brothers within the church that couldn't deal with that. And they could say, hey, he's done it. It must be okay. And pretty soon he's in there eating the meat, but he's also doing all the other pagan practices as well. Because that's what he used to do. Thinking, well, if I'm free in Christ, why not? See, it can be regulated by the conscience of the one who commits it. And to violate your conscience is to do something you feel is wrong. We're not talking about things that are even commanded or prohibited in Scripture here. Those are black and white areas of of sinfulness. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about things that the Bible doesn't speak about. And if you feel that a thing is wrong and you go and you do it, you violate your conscience. It causes confusion in your heart, in your mind. Maybe even resentment, perhaps even guilt. Because in your own mind you've committed a sin. Even if that thing in the eyes of God is not sin. In your mind, it's sin. And it robs you of your peace and your joy in Christ. And what he's pointing out is anyone who causes such a weak brother to defile his conscience helps that brother into sin. He mentions it over in Romans 14. We don't need to turn there, but he talks about it. We have to be helpful to those who are weaker. Just because we have the right to do something doesn't mean that we should. You've got to consider that in the equation. And it's your brother or sister in Christ. You have to make sure you're handling it the proper way. Is it a hazard or a help? Thirdly, verses 8 to 12 kind of bears out this principle. He says, does your conscience, clear conscience, have catastrophic consequences? Does your clear conscience have catastrophic consequences? See, we don't want to make this kind of mistake around younger believers. Don't think that because you're free to do something, anything goes. What Paul is saying is freedom is inseparably tied to responsibility. Freedom is inseparably tied to responsibility. Even though you're free in Christ to do all all that is not known sin, we still have the responsibility before other believers even though we know that food isn't an issue with God, that idols don't, aren't real. The Lord himself said there's nothing from without a man that when it enters into him can defile him. 
But the things that come out of him, those are the things that will defile him. You remember Peter having the vision, right? In the book of Acts. It's not a matter of whether it's right or wrong to eat something. It's about having a love for your maybe fellow believer. You don't want to ruin, that's that word perish. You don't want to draw them into sin as a result of your own actions. You can cause a person to sin by leading them into a situation that they can't handle. See, modern day illustrations of this, one is drinking alcohol. There's some people that cannot drink alcohol. They have an addictive behavior. They have alcoholism in their background. And for you to say, oh, oh, yeah, here, have a glass of wine. Yeah, you'll be okay. We're free in Christ to do all things. No. You never want to do that to an alcoholic. You may be giving them that glass of wine innocently, but lo and behold, later in the week, they're in the gutter drunk out of their mind. Or another thing that's not mentioned in Scripture is movies. Some people can go to movies all day long and say it doesn't bother them. I can go to a movie and I can even listen to foul language and see bodies blown up and all that stuff doesn't bother me. But you introduce an element of sexuality to it, I don't want to go see that kind of movie. Because that doesn't help me at all. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. I mean, we, we want to dwell on things that are godly, don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying we're all different. So we have to be careful when it comes to this area. You may have a clear conscience, but just because you have a clear conscience doesn't mean that you just get the right to go do whatever you want. Because that person that you're offending or causing to sin, even unbeknownst to you, has been redeemed at such a price. Their price was the blood of Christ. The same price that we were purchased with. And we should not cause them to sin at the expense of our own arrogance and pridefulness. See, the voice of the Christian's conscience is the instrument of the Spirit of God. God works through our conscience. It's kind of like a a doorkeeper standing there. We went to a, one of the seminars down there was church security. And they talked about having a, you know, nowadays you have to have security in your, house, in your churches. You have to have people that are aware of what's going on around them. Those dangerous places. Maybe God doesn't want us to go because he knows that we'll, we'll perish there. That's your conscience. You know what you can do and what you can't do. You know what you're given to sin and what what doesn't bother you. I mean, you wouldn't dream of giving a a little baby in a crib a razor blade to play with. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't give them a, a a box of matches. You wouldn't put them in the middle of a busy road and say, here, play with your toys. 
But when that baby gets a little bit older, all those things could be used for good. See, we should never expand our actions and our habits before our own conscience permits it. We should never do a thing that we feel is wrong because if we feel it's wrong, it's, it's sin. It's not a faith, the Bible says. But we should also never be in the position of encouraging another believer to defile their own conscience, no matter how immature it may be. Because causing a brother or sister to fall is not just a sin against them. Paul says here, it's a sin against the Lord. See, love for others will make you limit your liberty in Christ. And that's what he says here in the last verse. Does it regulate, does love regulate your living? Look at what he says in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat a meal. I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So if eating meat is going to offend my brother, guess what? I'm going to give up meat. Sometimes we'll have people over for dinner. My wife's always good at this. I'm never good at this, but she'll, do you have any food allergies or is there anything you don't like to eat or whatever? I'm like, they're coming to our house. I don't know. They can eat whatever we're cooking, man. What are you talking about? But, you know, that's just her heart. She just wants to make sure. See, and that's, that's, that's wise. <clears throat> but even when you, <clears throat> even when you get, the knowledge in your conscience is redirected like a, a compass to that magnetic north. You're still to have your knowledge tempered by love. I mean, if we could decide from this point on, you know what? Okay, I got my theology down. I got a lot of knowledge in that area. But how am I doing in this area of love? Is my conduct, even when I know I'm right, always regulated by love? I would have to say no for me personally. Sometimes I'm just there to prove the other person wrong. Can't you see this? Black and white. What's wrong with you? That's not a good attitude to have. That's not love. That's not the love of Christ. Imagine what it would be like if we all went away from this morning deciding that from this time on we will live by love. Loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, loving those even who are lost. I mean, think of the impact it might have on your family, on your marriage, on your neighborhood, your workplace, even this church. I mean, one of the most penetrating statements of our Lord was found in John 13. John 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you what? Love one another. As I have loved you, you also love one another. And then he says this, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. I often read that. And he says, if you have love for one another. I thought, why doesn't he say, They'll know that you're my disciples because you're serious students of the word of God. Or they'll know you're my disciples if you have long, beautiful times of prayer. 
Or they'll know you're my disciples if you attend all the meetings in your church. Or if you give all of your time and all of your talent and all of your treasure to the work of God, then they'll know you're my disciples. I mean, all those things are valuable. All those things are desirable. But not one of them does Jesus list. And this is the point that Paul is driving home. Because what? Not one of them will be the magnet that will draw people to the knowledge of God. Not one. John, in his first epistle, says this. This is how men will see God, who no man has ever seen right throughout time, nor will ever see. When you, as the church of Jesus Christ, love one another, and when people in the world see the love of the family, they will be drawn into the open arms of the Father. This true love, agape love, the love of God, was lacking in the Corinthian church. They had a lot of knowledge. They had a lot of gifts. They had a lot of things. But they were sorely lacking. Let me ask you this. What about here? What about Grace Bible Church? Are we just here to hold up the truth? Stand behind this pulpit and pump out Scriptural knowledge, crank out facts and figures that rarely ever impact our lives or ever are practiced beyond these doors? Is our knowledge tempered by love? I mean, all you have to do is modernize this to modern this passage is to remove the word meat and read in its place one of the other things that constitutes a problem in our modern day Christian living. And Paul says, whatever it is, if that thing makes my brother to be offended, I will never do it as the word stands, lest I make my brother offend. All you hear today is rights, rights, rights. We all got rights. Paul is willing that his brother suffer instead of his that his 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 brother suffer instead of his brother's soul. He's willing to enjoy a few temporal fewer temporal things that his brother may have a greater eternal life. He's willing to limit his strength in order to aid his brother's weakness. He's happy to suspend his knowledge in order to aid his brother's ignorance. So in all questions of conduct, he's willing to regulate his liberty by love. And that's how he ends it. The question is not whether something is sin or not. The question is, is that, whatever it might be, the conduct of a Christian? Because in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul writes, So whether you eat or you drink, or whatever you do, what? Do all for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's clear teaching on areas that sometimes seem gray to us. Sometimes scripture doesn't point out every little 
right thing we should do or every wrong thing we should do. Sometimes it's a matter of our conscience. It's a matter of looking out for our brother or sister in Christ. It's good to have the right theology. But that theology without love can be harmful, can be hurtful. You do not desire us to be such. And so, Lord, we pray that you would temper our knowledge by your love. Father, every day that you would fill us with your spirit, help us to love those around us, love people in our church, our neighborhood, our family, with a love that's willing to sacrifice. It's a love that's willing to look beyond our own needs, our own desires, and how best to meet that other person's needs and desires. Father, that's what your son did when he came to this earth. He set aside himself. He yielded himself as a sacrifice for our sin. If there's any here this morning who's yet to put their trust or faith in Christ, I pray that today might be the day that they cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to turn from my sin to the Savior because I've been trying too long and too hard for something to fix this. But your word says that there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would turn and look to Christ today. As believers, I just pray that we would live lives that are filled with your love, forgiveness, and grace. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.